If you've been with us over the last um, month, you know that we have been in a sermon series called Fully Alive, and basically um, we are anchoring ourselves in that key passage of scripture that Jesus offers up to his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus says this, I came that you may have life and life more abundantly. And the premise of that uh, particular passage of scripture is what is the underlying kind of theme or tagline for our Southeast Raleigh table, which is we're about that life-giving life. We believe that we can experience more peace, more grace, more goodness, not once we die and we go to heaven, but instead, instead of us just thinking about how are we going to get to heaven, but how we get heaven into us, how do we live that abundant life in the here and now, in our everyday, ordinary, waking and breathing moments? And this life-giving life, this life that is abundant, this life that is overflowing, this life that has texture to it, we also want that life-giving life for other people, which means that as a church community, we are committed to dismantling systems that do not bend in the direction of God's justice or in Jesus's love. We want to know and experience life, and we want other people to know and experience life. And so whenever um, I felt as though God was placing kind of on my heart for us to move in this direction to do this sermon series called Fully Alive, I knew that I could not get through the sermon series if I didn't spend at least one Sunday talking about mental illness and mental health. Now, what I didn't realize is that... um, This upcoming week is actually Mental Illness Awareness Week. I mean, this is how God works in my life sometimes. I just start doing things, and then God is like, yeah, Lisa, you aren't doing it because you're so brilliant, but because I'm the one who, like, makes things happen. Because I could not have, um, at the beginning of this sermon series, have known that uh, we were going to spend next week uh, basically kind of on the national realm uh, talking about mental illness and also mental health. And so um, it's important it's important that if we talk about what it looks like to be fully alive, um, that we, we recognize um, the realities not only of our physical lives, but also our emotional and our mental well-being. Do you know that um, in the United States that one in five adults will experience mental illness this year? That one in 25 adults will experience a serious mental illness this year? That um, one in six children or young people aged six to 17 will um, experience a mental disorder? That suicide, this is so wild, friends, that suicide is the second leading cause of death. Hear this. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for individuals aged 10 through 34, higher among males, even higher so among other um, particular demographics like our LGBTQ community, youth. The second leading cause. And pretty much all of us at some point in our lives are going to recognize that there's some unresolved realities that we're going to like wrestle with before we take our last breath. So it's important that we talk about mental health and also mental illness because if we are people who say within the Christian tradition that we believe in life, that we believe in, in knowing that in our everyday waking, breathing moments, that we are not bound up or living in our tombs, that we are not people who are half alive, that it's not simply about receiving healing in our physical bodies, but also healing in our minds and our hearts, our emotional, spiritual, and mental well-being. God instructs us to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you know how we know how to do that is because God loves us wholly. 
W-H-O-L-L-Y. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, and God loves us with strength. So we don't only just give God a leg that is broken, but we can also give God a heart and sometimes our minds when we feel like they are breaking. And we can do so unashamed and not cowering or having to pretty up our stories. Because we who believe in life, we want people to access resources that also lead to life. That we might see practitioners of healing, therapists, counselors, spiritual guides, learning grounding exercises. Maybe having a season where we're on some medication that might help us to feel more alive or more ourselves. That we can see those as gifts from the Most High God who wants to see us live life, not just life, but life more abundantly. So I'm going to also say this. There's not one passage of scripture that speaks to mental health or mental illness and the ways in which we use those terms today. I think it's just really important for me to say that. I don't want you to think I'm going to point to something and say, see, this is why the first week in October is called Mental Illness Awareness Month. That's, that would be a little bit manipulative. However, the beautiful thing about scripture is that it helps us understand the nature of God, but scripture also helps us understand the reality of people's lives and how God is at work in the reality of people's lives. Scripture is built on stories about this God who pursues us, and scripture is also revelatory about the stories of our own lives, how our lives are beautiful and how our lives can also be brutal how we can be brilliant, but also how we sometimes have seasons of brokenness. So this morning, um, we're going to lean into the ways in which scripture helps us to understand when we have restlessness, not just in our bodies, but literally um, in our souls. Scripture that talks about peace in the midst of despair, or how God counts our sleepless nights and bottles up every one of our tears how we want to expect dancing after we've had seasons of mourning, scripture that talks about fathers and mothers weeping, sorrowful, bones being crushed. If we are people who say that we believe life, then it just can't be about my leg, <laughs> but all of us. So I will read one passage of scripture in the midst of my sermon, but we'll actually kind of um, refer back to other passages of scripture. And if you are unfamiliar with any of the scripture lessons that I kind of gloss over, please feel free after worship service to find me or even to email me, and I'd be more than happy to kind of share with you where you can find those passages so that you can feel confident that I'm not just kind of like spouting off stuff, um, but that it's actually anchored within um, our, our scriptural tradition. Uh, but with that, I'm going to invite you um, to pray with me. And I'm going to just invite you to, as you close your eyes, if you have anything in your hands, I'm going to just invite you to let that thing go. I want you to be present to this moment. to be aware even of your pattern of breathing. 
How do you feel in this moment? Do you feel alive? Or do you feel like you can't feel? I want you to be present to this moment. And gracious God, would you remind us that you are present to us? That as you come to us in your word and Holy Spirit, you speak to us words that bring us life. That you love our hearts, our minds, our souls, and you love us with a fierce, strong love. And you love us through your word. So God, I pray that I would not take your words hostage, but instead, oh God, you would take these words from my mouth and you would do something beautiful with them. That they would not only land upon our ears, but also the ears of our hearts to be lived out beautifully with our lives, that we might know that, God, you love us wholly. Love us wholly now through the power of your word and Holy Spirit. Speak, Lord for your servants are listening. We pray this in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So um, yesterday I did a wedding, and um, after the wedding, one of the family members of um, the groom saw me in the parking lot, and jokingly, after he had told me that he enjoyed the way that I had officiated this wedding, he said to me, well, do you do funerals too? And he said it with a, kind of a lot of levity, and I, so I said to him, yes, you know, I marry him and I bury him, you know. And when I got in the car and I thought about how I had said that so jokingly, um, I recognize also the weight of my words that oftentimes when I am in the midst of a funeral, there is no levity about it. <laughs> There's not this sense of joking. And I began to think as I was um, preparing for this mo moment, the funerals that are sometimes the most difficult for me. I've told you a couple of weeks ago that it always pains me whenever I have to do a funeral for someone whose birth date is, um, is after mine. There's something that always reminds me of my own mortality in those moments. But I'll tell you um, the other moments when I um, have a really difficult time doing funerals, and that's whenever someone has taken their life or committed suicide. And I'll tell you why it's so difficult for me as a pastor in those moments, because almost always, actually except for one moment, for one time, almost always I have to turn into a pretty little liar as a pastor. When I did the service for um, a young uh, student who had just graduated from college, um, who had dealt with addictions, and we didn't want to say if it was maybe intentional or it was an, uh, or, or an accidental overdose, um, I had to be a pretty little liar. When I did the service for a father of some preschool-aged children who, when his children were in the house, he slipped into the closet and made his, his tomb, and he took his life. I had to be a pretty little liar, couldn't say anything about it. For a mom who um, struggled with postpartum psychosis, which is different than postpartum depression, um, had to somehow kind of put on a, a brave face when we did the baptism for her child. And everyone was trying to wonder, where is the mother? Because she had taken her life, but we, we weren't going to say anything about it. And if it's not... Um, 
suicide. It's the funerals where there was a season of a person's life when like other human beings, one in five, or one in 25, or one in six, just went through the valley of the shadow of death being human and struggling. I wasn't supposed to say anything about the gentleman who basically became a recluse after he had had a pretty traumatic event in his adulthood. I'm not supposed to say um, the reason why she stopped showing up at the Christmas parties because her anxiety had gotten so bad and she didn't even want to be in the room of people even at the club. I'm not supposed to say anything about why this person didn't show up to Sunday school for about six months, but all of a sudden something triggered them after their firstborn child had died. Skip over those parts, Lisa. Skip over those parts. Skip over those parts. We're supposed to tell people's stories, but then we like skip over parts. And when we begin to skip over parts, then we start to have a stigma about those parts. And when we have a stigma about those parts, then it becomes a greater burden upon um, the individual who is living those parts. But we are human, one in five, one in 25, one in six children. Maybe we can be more honest. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning with the first verse, this is what the scripture tells us about this gentleman. His name is Elijah. And Elijah, I mean, he has been on the top of his prophetic game. Elijah is like when he speaks, people listen. Elijah is able to create all of these miracles. Elijah, I mean, is like a bad to the bone. I mean, he is just one of those people who gets things done. But Elijah is also human. And um, Elijah has a little moment where a little death threat is put over his life. And so this is what um, the scripture says in um, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning with the first verse. It says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. Basically, Jezebel's like, oh, you see what you did to these, to these individuals? I will make it my, my top priority that you also know their reality. And it says this, then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey. Basically, he wanted to be isolated into the wilderness, which is not just simply a physical place, but also speaks to an emotional and spiritual place, and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. And Elijah asked that he might die. Literally. It's like the emails I've gotten from people who say, I just want it all to end. And Elijah says this, it is enough now, O Lord, just take away my life for I am no better than my ancestors. Then Elijah lay down under the broom tree and he fell asleep. Does this passage talk about mental illness and the ways in which we talk about mental illness? N not so much. But is this this person who's living a, a human life who's got 
some stressors in his life and then finds himself, even though he has been on top of his game, all of a sudden in this particular moment, it's like kind of the breaking point for Elijah. And Elijah sits under this solitary broom tree. I mean, he, like leaves a, he isolates himself. He leaves his servant behind and basically calls out to God, the one who's supposed to be the giver of life, and he's just like, I just want it to end. And he falls asleep underneath this tree. Now, later on in the this, in this, in this story, um, God attends to Elijah, and God also attends to Elijah, not just in the beautiful, miraculous ways that God attends, but also through other people to come and to care for Elijah in his moment of great despair. You know, we can um, easily uh, find ourselves hearing scripture being uh, caricatured in a way that um, sums up all of how we understand mental health or mental illness. You know, um, sometimes the church has had a really horrible trajectory of only focusing on stories when people have like a possession, a demon possession, and they'll talk about that in regards to, uh, to mental health or mental illness, which is why some people recoil. They really recoil, or why the stigma even becomes greater because we only make those passages of scripture, but we forget about these passages of scripture. When natural stressors in a person's life cause them to want to be in solitary confinement, to isolate themselves, and to say, I want everything to just end. Or we forget about passages of scripture like the widow of Zarephath who finds herself so financially stressed, she has nothing to feed her children, and she basically thinks she's going to be at the point of death. Or King Saul, who has bouts where his soul is so troubled that it's as though something comes on him and it's only music that's played by David that brings him comfort. It's like the Calm app. Or David, who is so overwhelmed by shame because he has gotten someone murdered and exploited another man's wife, that his like, internal anguish feels as though um, it is manifesting in physical ways. He says that it feels like my bones are being crushed. We can caricature certain passages of scripture and we forget others. And we can also sometimes then begin to caricature certain people's lives. When we say mental illness or mental health, we only think about the person that we see sometimes walking on the streets who's talking to themselves. but we forget about the person who, when they've lost a job, they've also um, begin to wrestle with who they are because their job was their key identity. Or we forget about the stories of individuals who, after the unexpected loss of a loved one, everything about life feels tragic. No food tastes the same, no day feels the same, nothing is the same. We forget about the mother who is so loving who after she has a child, she's supposed to be posting lots of pictures on Facebook or Instagram, but she really, truly is feeling so sorrowful and sad, but is not allowed to say anything because you're supposed to say these are the happiest days of your life. Or what about when you wake up and you just feel like a stranger to yourself? Our dear friend, Erin Lane, who's probably one of the most brilliant writers and theologians, I think, in our community, she says this, um, what happens when you cannot feel your own life? When you sleep longer than you used to and you sleep less than you used to, 
when a breakup for some particular reason ushers in a season of depression that you just did not plan for, or the financial stress starts to bring up your old childhood insecurities of will you be taken care of, or, or when you are parenting your child and you're standing in the kitchen, you begin to remember a time when you were standing in the kitchen with an unloving parent and they said that thing to you that feels like it's etched on your heart. Sometimes we forget that our stories, our stories, our stories are not simply about arms that hurt, but also hearts that break. But these will be the things that oftentimes people will say, don't talk about, don't, that's not what you need to, that's not what you need to talk about. And so then we create this stigma about why, what might be real about our lives. And because of the stigma, sometimes the church has done harm by saying, if you just prayed harder, if you just believed more deeply, if you just walked closer, we know how to show up when an arm's broken. Or sometimes we, we begin to accommodate um, the places in our lives we use our work to overcompensate, our over-religiosity to pacify, relationships to fill the gaps. These are our stories. And God loves us wholly. I just want to say something, friends. Whenever couples are coming to me because they have gotten engaged, no one, no one ever like blinks when a couple says they want to come go through premarital counseling. Why? Because we make space for that. But let someone decide that they need marital counseling. All of a sudden, there's a weight in that. I want us to think about the ways in which we hold one another's stories and how we sometimes place more burden on the stories when God wants us to be free. I want to just also say this. I want to name that it is scary whenever you might need to ask for help when you may need a therapist, when you may need to go to um, um, a, a small group, whenever you might need someone to journey with you in a particular way that isn't just you know, asking for prayer or for spiritual support. So let's name that it's scary. Let's name that we sometimes worry about what people will think. And let's also name, friends, that we want to be whole. Let's name that we want to live life Let's name that when Jesus comes to us over and over again in scripture and says, do you want to be made whole? Jesus isn't just talking about the nick on our arm, but also talking about all of us. That we can really live life. Who wants to live the kind of life that every time you drop something and there's a noise, you literally begin to recoil? Who wants to parent their children out of their own childhood wounds? Who wants to be the person who always sabotages relationships because you're not quite sure what it is to love yourself? Who wants to never be able to sleep? 
Like this young man that I met this summer who for four years of his life did not ever have a night where he did not have a nightmare. Maybe we can name that it is scary, but it is still okay. To see someone or to get on medication or to have a support group. Can we name that it's not weakness, but it's our desire to fight to be whole? That you want to live in the here and now you want to live. In 2011 and 2012, um, I used to say this because I was trying to pretty up my story. Um, I would say I, I really went through a real, deep, a real deep season of sadness. I was depressed. And the thing that triggered the depression is that um, I had, um, and this always happens, I had been with my family members. And you know, sometimes when you're with your family, well, this is for me, when, I, when I'm with my family members, it's like a slow reel of everything that is just kind of out of control. And I was already feeling some restlessness, as I shared last week, about just some parts of my own, um, my own growing up story. And also, too, I had developed, um, in that course of the year, this major fear of failure, and specifically around ministry. And if you do not know this, ministry will make you very intimate with failure. I, I just can't make everything. I, there's no such, trying to be perfect in this role, whew, I mean, it will, it will do something to you. So anyway, I had gone um, to, a, uh, to a family event, and when I was in that family event, and we were actually in the kitchen, it's like all of a sudden, all the secrecy motifs in my family had come, to, were, just like, were just like so present. It's like I could not eat because I'm like, we all know what we all know. And all the things that we don't ever talk about, we all know what we don't know. And watching these patterns of people calling things normal that I'm like, this is not, no this is not life-giving. And I remember driving home and like literally like feeling choked up in my, in my throat, like, in my, like every five like miles, I'd, like, I'd start to like hold my heart. It hurt my heart. So then um, that next morning when I was going to work, I, I will, gosh, I'll never forget, I was driving up Dawson, about to turn left into the parking lot at Edenton Street, and I lost it. And I walked into the building, probably the receptionist wondering what was wrong with me, and I got on the phone, and that day I called up this woman named Dr. Joanne Jennings, and she says, okay, why do you think you would want to come see me? And I just said, I can't live like this. That's all I said to her. I, I couldn't give her a bullet point for what was going on. I was like, I just can't live like this. And she was God's grace to me in human form for the next year and a half as she journeyed with me as my therapist. Helping me in my wilderness moment to recognize that God still provides manna and God provides manna through people and also through resources. Because I couldn't live like that because I wasn't living. And it was okay for me to say it. And to know that there were resources help me. I want our whole stories to be held. And I want to say this about this church community, that we're not going to have the stigma about mental health or mental illness. We're going to make space for one another. 
We're not going to always do it perfectly. But while we also pray for you, we will also help you to have access to resources. <laughs> and while we will trust that God will draw near to you, we will also, um, we will never balk when someone has you to sit across from them on a couch so that you can talk about the thing that you just need to talk about so that we can say your whole story. I invited some of the practitioners in our community, actually, to share with me some of the greatest resources they, th they think we should make available to our community. And next Sunday, we're going to publish those resources, how you can have access to therapists um, despite your financial situation, which is one of the major reasons why people aren't um, able to actually seek out help, because there's accessibility and affordability, books that you can read, people that you can see because we want this to be a place where your whole story can be held. So I'm going to also share with you how it is that I am also continuing to work on my mental health. By the end of this year, I need to find a new therapist because my therapist has moved to Connecticut and we can't do things via Skype. That just doesn't work for this person. I'm also going to start going to CODA meetings, which are meetings for those who might deal with codependency because I want to be better in my relationships My whole story, your whole story, my whole story, your whole story. We are called to love God with our hearts, our minds, our soul, and with all of our strength. And I want us to believe that we are also loved, our hearts, our minds, our soul, that God loves us with great strength. Will you pray with me? God, it's sometimes difficult to talk about the interior life. It is difficult to share where we sometimes just feel off or depressed, or where we may struggle in relationships. God, we confess that it is difficult to name our places of trauma. Or even to speak about how sometimes, Lord, the ways in which um, we have been hurt, how that has caused us to respond in ways that we've hurt others. God, we confess that it is just, it is difficult difficult to love and to be patient when people can't always point to the pain but they feel the pain God we confess that sometimes we just want people quote unquote to get over it or maybe they're overreacting we confess that sometimes we have said these words out of our own mouths God we confess that there are moments when we have balked when people have sought out help, or that we hide when we seek out help. 
God, you make space for us. God, we believe that you're calling our church to be a place where we make space for each other. That not only for our physical pains, but also, Lord God, the times when just emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we feel exhausted, wounded, hurt. Whether we feel like our stories are significant or maybe our stories are insignificant. But whether our journeys are for but a short season or, Lord, for all of our lives that we're just going to have to wrestle, you make space for us. So help us to see ourselves and one another in the ways in which you see us. Worthy to be made whole. So we thank you, God. We thank you for the practitioners among us who come to make us whole. We thank you for the therapists among us who give us a place to share our stories. We give you thanks for the psychiatrists who want us to be alleviated of our pains or anxieties. We thank you for all of the resources that come like tangible expressions of who you are as a God who will not leave us. God, we want to be a, the kind of community that declares these as good gifts. And Lord, we pray that if there is anyone this day who because of stigma or the ways in which we have spoken about mental health feels like they cannot show up fully in this place, God, that you would forgive us and that today we would practice making space. And if there's anyone this day who feels like their life is not worth the living, that God, we would either keep our eyes open or this might be the day of great courage for our friend, our neighbor to say, I just need help. God, for all of us, because we are human, because we have stories, because there are things in our lives that might be unresolved, help us to know that you, God, you heal. And you heal through these gifts that you have made available to us. Make space, give us courage. Lord, we want to be made whole. So we offer ourselves to you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who was with us.